We are in this series where we're talking about, uh, we started last week and we're talking over the next few weeks about uh, how to uh, pass on your faith to your kids and what it means to uh, raise children in the faith. And we're, this is kind of like a parenting series, except I'm not going to tell you how to parent. Uh, I, I know sometimes how to parent my kids and I don't know how to parent your kids, but we can talk about what the Bible teaches as far as uh, passing on what we have in Jesus on to next generations. And last week we looked at Deuteronomy 6, which actually uh, instructs and, and shows how God's set up for the faith or the people of God to pass their faith on in a meaningful way in the home or in the family, and that's the primary way that faith is passed on, not through a, a church group or a Sunday school or a youth pastor or something like that, but it is really that kids uh, catch more than they like they are. It's more caught than taught. They're going to become you. They're not going to become what you tell them to become. Just like, and if you're still young and you have hope that this isn't going to happen to you, here's the bad news. Just like we all kind of turn into our parents. And there's parts of us that we will do or act or behave in a certain way. And eventually you hit that depressing moment where you go, I just said what my dad said to me, right? Like, I, don't make me pull this car over. And you're like, why on earth? I'm not going to pull over, you know? And, and then you realize you have to pull over once or they're not going to believe you. And uh, it's that kind of, I don't think you're, uh, like it's a fate thing, like you're going to become your parents. I think it's a personality thing. You don't have to make the same choices as your parents. And some of us aren't parents. Some of us, maybe someday you will be. And this might be, you might be like, it's all right. If you're not a parent, you're listening to this and you're going, it's all right. I know how to do this, right? Like everyone who doesn't have kids is an awesome parent. Like when I have kids, they're always going to do and you name something that your kids, like God's going to give you kids who will never do that thing. And it's going to be fantastic. You know, when I have kids, they're going to love LeBron James and then they'll be into like Kevin Durant, you know, like. And you're like, where did I go wrong? And, and, but, but there is a, I mean, he hasn't even been to the championship. But anyways, the, the, the uh, anyway, the important thing that we're going to talk about today is uh, how your marriage actually affects your children. And this even goes beyond uh, your children. Like if you have any role or influence in next generations, like a coach or a teacher or a mentor or something like that, or even if you're just an individual who's here and you don't know that little children actually look up for you, you might have no idea uh, who you are actually matters in their development. And so, and that's in the church community or in the village or that the church is. There are people that growing up, I looked up to that would have no idea that I looked up to them. And there are people who look up to you who likely you have no idea that they look up to you. And so when you think about how you are and how you behave and how you live, those are significant things that are influencing not just your life, but the lives of people that you don't even know are, are watching you. And so it becomes a significant thing and then your personal holiness and your personal relationship with Jesus isn't just about you. And they like to say very much that you have a personal relationship with Jesus but not a private relationship with Jesus. You don't have, like, your faith journey with Jesus doesn't just affect you. It isn't one of those things where you say, well, nobody else is getting hurt. It does, it's not a big deal. It's a big deal because it affects 
people around you, people who you might not even realize that it affects. And so when we talk about marriage, that's an effective thing. But some of us aren't married. Uh, Some of you, when we talk about marriage, it might be a painful thing to talk about. Maybe you're a single parent, or maybe you're a single person who was married, or maybe you've never been married. And I'd like to talk about this that this morning as well as we go, because I think that the Bible speaks to people where they are, not just the Bible isn't, like if the Bible is just a set of rules that we follow, then it doesn't speak to everyone. And I think that all of the Bible is applicable to all people. So we're also going to read this morning, I normally use a translation of the Bible. Well, let me back up. If you don't know, the Bible wasn't written in English. Jesus wasn't a blonde guy with a blue sash that had a British accent. He, <laughs> he was from the Middle East. He looked like a Middle Eastern person, and he spoke Middle Eastern languages. And so when the Bible was originally written down, it was in different languages. So everything we have in English is a translation of that. And we're going to use uh, a translation that's actually a paraphrase today. It's called the Message. And the Message is a, like a translation from one person. Um, normally your translations, and it's, his name is Eugene Peterson, he's a very old pa- and trustworthy pastor, um, but uh, if, normally your translations, like if you have an NIV or an ESV or a, something with letters in it, then there's probably a committee, and you probably know that because you read the preface to your Bible because you were interested in the short forms and the footnotes, but you didn't do that. <laughs> but So you want to... You really want to know what schools were involved in translating your Bible, but you actually don't care. So uh, <laughs> there's different translations, and we're going to use one called The Message. And Eugene Peterson wrote The Message as a, he was a pastor, and he wanted the people of his church to be able to understand it. So it's really plain language, and, uh, so, but it's not like we don't study this scientifically. Does that make sense? It's kind of like he says things that may or may not be there. Uh, funny personal story. I was writing a paper one time on holiness, the theology of holiness, and Eugene Peterson used a word in a verse that I was interested in, and I didn't understand how he used it in the original language. It wasn't there. All right, you don't care already. Here's the cool part. So I wrote him a letter. I totally Facebook stalked him. I knew his wife's name, and I knew they lived in Montana, so I found out where they lived, and I wrote a letter. I didn't know the street. I just wrote Eugene Peterson in the city, and he lives in a small town in Montana, and I sent it. And all the other pastors on staff, I was working at another church, made fun of me. He totally wrote me back. And so in my paper, I quoted Eugene Peterson, personal correspondence, right? Like, it was fantastic. And I have that letter in my file still. I assume when I get to heaven, it would be like an extra pass into a cool place or something. But that's kind of Mormon doctrine right there, so don't believe that, all right? Wow, that's terrible. Um, <laughs> At the very end of the Old Testament, there's this prophet named Malachi, and he's the last prophet that speaks in the Old Testament, all right? And in the Old Testament, uh, these prophets would be uh, delivering God's word to the people, not just, and when we think of prophecy, we think of telling the future, right, like a fortune teller, but prophecy is really a, a one who brings forth truth, whether it's truth about the future or truth about the now. And so when Malachi would prophesy, he actually was telling people about how to live for God and what the truth of, the, of God's love for them was. And Malachi talks about these verses, and there's this section in there, and we're going to talk about this. We'll get to this in just a second. Um, you can leave it up there, but we'll get to that in just a second. There's a section in Malachi that all the pastors know, because when you go to pastor school, you talk about the theology of divorce. 
Uh, they say something like half of all marriages end up in divorce these days. And, uh, and, and so when you're a pastor, that's something you're dealing with with people all of the time. Uh, and, and so there's, it's just a thing that people, and even just in marriage relationships, it's a struggle sometimes uh, to uh, work through some of the things that it takes to remain married. It's, marriage isn't, just like any relationship, marriage takes an investment. And so this, in Malachi, it has this amazing verse that actually says, God hates divorce. All right, like, and this, I'm surprised this isn't like a, a Christian wristband or a t-shirt or something, but God actually hates divorce. And, and it's strange because we're like, God is love. And then this is like, no, here's something that God hates. Like, and when God hates it, it's a dangerous thing, isn't it? It's not just like, I hate it, or like, you know, I hate cold pizza, you know, like God actually hates divorce. And here's what ends up happening when people just say that a lot from the front into a microphone. The people who have experienced divorce hear, God hates divorced people. And I want you to just back up and listen to what I'm saying, because it does not say that. God hates divorce. And I would bet that everyone here, if we really backed up and said, you know what, I kind of hate divorce too. Like, I kind of hate it. And I don't hate the people involved with it at all. I just hate that it happens. I hate that people have to experience the pain that's involved in divorce. Even when I've seen a situation where there's uh, someone who's radically abusive, and, and this is terrible, like this is, te- this is terrible, when there's a radically abusive person and some dork Christian counselor says, you've got to stay together because God hates divorce. Well, God hates get- you getting hit too, moron, you know, like... So I get really, really angry, and I don't say moron. So in a marriage, even when there is like adultery or abandonment or abuse, which are all things that the Bible creates allowance for divorce for, like in the Bible times when there were no phones, if the husband went off and left and never returned, the wife was allowed to remarry someone else. She wasn't like, well, I'm not divorced. I'm not allowed to get the... that dude is gone, right? Like, so and there's no way to find him. So when divorce happens, even if it's for a reason that you can totally see and that the Bible creates allowance for, you hate that that person is going through that. If you like actually care for someone, you hate that this is where their life ended up. There's nobody who, when they're like getting ready for trick or treat, they're dressed up as a divorced princess, right? Like there's nobody who's thinking. Some, maybe they are, right? But <laughs> that's a Disney concept. There you go. Like Frozen 2, the marriage fails. But <laughs> the kids would resonate with that. But there is a jeepers. <laughs> Aaron last week said, everyone invite your friends because James won't say anything stupid. <laughs> so when we, but when we think about divorce, it's, it's always terrible. Like even if it's for a a good, like, and you won't like a pastor saying this, but a reason that's right. You still hate that people ended up there. And so when we think about marriage, and if you've been through a divorce, here's what I want you to know, that God hates divorce, and God loves you. And God hates that you're going through or have gone through what you've gone through. And God hates that this is just where life ended up. And he doesn't, like, fix it. 
He doesn't come in and say, well, there, there you go. Now it's fixed. Now everything's fine again. Or, and not even, like, he doesn't always fix your marriage or fix your relationship or fix your emotional or mental self. He doesn't do that. Instead, he sits there in it with you. And this is what I want you to know, that God suffers through that just like someone who loves you suffers through that. Exactly the same. When things go bad or things go in a way that you didn't want them to go or you're suffering in a way that you didn't anticipate suffering and you wonder, where is God? Uh, This is what the Bible teaches, that God is actually there with you. God is actually in, in that suffering. In the same way when my children suffer, and this is why God's resented as a, as a father, I'm in that suffering with them. When my kids experience failure or rejection, or they have like real life problems, I'm, I feel sometimes in an even deeper way than they feel in the situations that they're in. And God feels exactly what you feel. And then I want to say this, and I want to be very, very clear. Jesus never got married. Even though somebody wrote a fiction book about it and your faith went for a loop because of the Da Vinci Code. Good night. But like I know the Bible teaches that, but the Da Vinci Code... <laughs> freaking so... I'm mad now, right? Like, <laughs> Jesus never got married. Jesus never experienced sexual intercourse with another person. Never. And Jesus lived a complete and full and enjoyable life. Complete. And so if you're here and you're single and you're wondering, oh, I'm like, God just doesn't understand what I'm going through. All these other people are married. And I know that's, like, I know emotionally that's difficult. What you need to know is where Jesus is. If Jesus was here today, he's not here with his wife and kids. Jesus was a single man who lived, and the Bible says he was the author and the perfecter of our faith, and he lived a full and complete life, and he was never married, and he never had sex. Never. And so if you're wondering about how your life could be used by God if you're single, or how could your life be used by God, Jesus was. In fact, you could argue, and you might not like this, but you can argue biblically that being married is actually a limiter to obedience to God. And here's what I mean. If God calls me to be a missionary to Umbubatu tomorrow, right? Like, I mean, Jesus shows up in my living room and says, James, how do you like my blue sash, right? Like, and says, here's what you got to do. You're going to the missionary Umbubatu. I have to convince a bunch of other people to go with me, Right? Because I can't abandon my family, that's unbiblical. So then I have to convince my wife, Jesus showed up in my living room while I was watching The Walking Dead and said, James, <laughs> you need to go to Umbubatu, right? Like, if I was, when you're single, that's a decision like this. And this is what the Bible teaches. When you're married, you have a preoccupation in your mind and in your heart and in your life. And the Bible actually, this is, if you're young, you're going to love this. The Bible says, if you burn with passion for the opposite sex, then go ahead and get married. And I had a great theology professor when I went through Bible college and said, he prayed about it and he was burning. So he went and found the best looking woman he could and married her. And that's biblical. (laughs) But 
biblically, there are people who do not burn with passion, and they live incredible lives. And that doesn't mean marriage is good or marriage is bad. Most of us and most people statistically would tend towards marriage. And now as generations grow up, the actual getting married is like happening less and less and less. So there will be some people who will live their entire lives and never be married. They may live with people, they may have families with people, but not marry them. But that kind of concept of thinking, and I'm, I'll speak aggressively, that if you're single and you have any thoughts of inadequacy or a lack of usefulness for God, that is not true at all. And it doesn't mean you shouldn't get married or should get married. You should just do what God does for you in your life. But being single in sometimes in the church starts to be like a scarlet letter and you think, oh, you know, I'm not married. I'll never be this or I'll never be that. And I can't think of anything that would be further from the truth according to what the Scripture teaches. So, now, let's move into what Malachi says about actual marriage, all right? This is uh, in Malachi 2, it's verse 15, it says this, God, not you, made marriage, and his spirit inhabits even the smallest details of marriage. It's important to understand this really quickly, and this is, like in our culture, there's a lot of debate over who gets to be married and who doesn't get to be married, and the arguments are all um, uh, less than biblical, and I would say from both sides, the arguments are less than biblical. It is just fantastic. I don't know if you saw this week, the Westboro Baptist was protesting against Kim Davis, which was fantastic because she was an adulteress because she'd been married lots of times. So they were using the same arguments that some pro-gay marriage people were using. She can't tell us what to do. She's been divorced a bunch of sides, and all of a sudden they found themselves on the side of Westboro Baptist. Crap, right? Like you never want to be going, I agree with Westboro Baptist. You never, that's not where you want to be. But, and I'm not saying yes or no, and that's not a political argument. It's just an interesting thing when people use arguments without thinking through the eventual implications of those arguments. What's important for Christians to understand is that marriage doesn't belong to you. And marriage doesn't belong, like your marriage doesn't belong to you. And the marriage as a concept doesn't belong to you. Marriage, biblically, is God's because he made it. Like, all the details of marriage, his spirit inhabits and lives in those things. God developed or designed or created or made marriage. And then he gave it to people. See, marriage is given to us um, as a gift because if you're married, well... Maybe this isn't true for you today, but if you're married, most of the time, it's stinking awesome, right? Like, there's a person, I'm married, and it's killer. Like, there's a person who loves to make my life better. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> like, and, it's, and there's a person that I get to make their life better, like for my whole life. And there's a person who's got my back and knows me more than anybody else. And, like, and, and there are days when being married to me is not awesome. All right? Like not awesome. All right? When LeBron loses, it's not good to be married to me. That's totally sarcastic. I didn't care very little. But there, is a, but there are days 
when it's difficult to be married to a person like me. That's why the video is so funny, right? Because you're laughing because you're like, oh, my wife isn't being serious? Like, when I play really, really well in co-ed recreational lowest level soccer, I expect that my wife will be attracted. <laughs> I, I don't expect that she will comment that I sweat through my shirt in its entirety and I was the goalie, right? Like, <laughs> that's, that's not my expect. I think, did you not, like, see my athletic prowess in my 40-year-old body? But marriage is this gift that God gave that is given to us, for us. But then on the other hand, marriage is also this thing that God created, and so because it's God, God uses it. And God uses marriage in the way that he wants to use marriage. And we're going to turn to, if, well, if you have a Bible, or it'll be on the screen, Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to read through this from the message, and it's a bunch of verses, so we'll read all the way through. And it kind of talks about what marriage is, and then I want to, so I'm going to read all the way through it, and there might be some things that you're like, whoa, hold on, but then we'll talk through it, okay? So, wives, understand and support your husbands. Like right there, some of you are like, I don't understand him. Right? Like you're like, no, 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 James, I can't obey that command. He doesn't act like a human sometimes. Okay, so <laughs> wives, understand and support your husband in ways that show you your support for Christ. The husband provides leadership to his wife the way that Christ does to his church, not by domineering, but by cherishing. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such leadership, Wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Just hold on if that made you angry. Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church, a love marked by giving, not getting. Christ's love makes the church whole. His words evoke her beauty. Everything he does and says is designed to bring out the best of her, dressing her in dazzling white silk, radiant with holiness. And that is how husbands ought to love their wives, they're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. No one abuses his own body, does he? Uh, no, he feeds and pampers it. And that's how Christ treats us, the church, since we are a part of his body. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and cherishes his wife. No longer two, they become one flesh. This is a huge mystery, and I don't pretend to understand it at all. What is clearest to me, and this is the Apostle Paul writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, what is clearest to me is that the way Christ treats the church. And this provides a good picture of how each husband is to treat his wife, loving himself and loving her, and how each wife is to honor her husband. Now, now let's work through that backwards, if that's all right. What it ends up talking about is that the love that Christ expressed for the church is the love that the husband expresses for his wife. The church exists because of Christ's self-sacrifice in his death and resurrection on the cross. This is the ultimate expression of love, that a man would lay down his life for another. And so when Christ is spoke of, in, the, in biblical metaphors, Christ and the church are metaphorically spoken of of groom and bride. And so the husband, and this is what God uses marriage for, he uses marriage to show the world how Jesus loves the church and how the church loves Jesus. 
And the way that, the church, that Jesus loves the church is complete and full self-sacrifice. Jesus lived solely and only so that you could have a right relationship with God. So if you're a husband or you want to be a husband and you wonder, what am I supposed to do every day? Your main goal in life as a Christian, Bible-believing husband is to enable your wife to have a right relationship with God. And so you sit back and you think, am I successful as a husband? And you can actually observe and look and see and say, yeah, my wife loves Jesus and has a vibrant relationship with Jesus. So I don't suck at this. <laughs> Sometimes I'm not very good at this. I have an emotional black hole and don't understand the conversations that we have. If you've seen that YouTube of the woman with a nail in her forehead, she complains about a headache and the husband's like, well, I think if you, and she goes, why don't you just listen to me? And there's a nail in it. You can Google this later, not right now. But, but there are times as a husband where you have no idea, and especially if you were raised without a dad or with a dad that was dysfunctional or a dad that didn't love Jesus and didn't lead his family to the Lord, there might be times when you're like, I don't know if I'm doing a good job. Like, I have no idea if I'm doing a good job at this. And biblically, the Bible says, are you presenting her and helping her know God? And so when husbands trot their kids around and feed their kids during Chickapalooza as their wife's off a retreat, growing in her faith, you're doing, like God is doing a dance and celebrating because you're doing the things that it takes for your wife to know God more and more. And that's not like a plug for Chickapalooza. There's other times when your wife, it, it, does your wife have money to be able to get a Bible? Does, do you give her time to pray? Do you take care of the kids so she can go in the bathroom and she's actually like having just alone time, right? <laughs> like there is this, uh, like as being a husband and the base, base, base level is not as difficult as sometimes it's made out to be. And Paul actually writes in this that it's a huge mystery, and he doesn't pretend to understand this. So, you know, Paul was single. But anyways, the, he didn't understand it to that level of not understanding it. Then we back up to this section right before this where it says, Husbands, go all out in your love for your wives, exactly as Christ did for the church. When you get married... And this might be a shock if you're already married. <laughs> when you get married, you're actually saying, I'm no longer going to live for myself. Like there's going to be this other person who I'm going to think through all of my decisions and try to make them beneficial for this other person. And then you have children, and that gets even further out there where you're no longer living for yourself. And so as a dad, if you're a terrible golfer, but you love golfing, but you're a terrible golfer, I think Jesus actually celebrates how terrible you are at that. <laughs> if you're a dad and you haven't been to the gym in months because you're working like crazy to provide for your family and you're loving them and you're getting them to their activities and, doing a, and your body isn't quite the way Jesus is on the cross, because we never have a chubby Jesus on the cross, I'm just saying, but... 
It would be awesome to go into a Catholic church one day and there's Jesus on the cross and he kind of looks like me. But there, is a, but there is this, Jesus isn't looking at that and saying, oh, I wish you worked out more. Or, oh, I wish you watched more football. Or, oh, I wish, like, you're actually giving a significance to your life that's wildly meaningful. You're passing a legacy on to generations beyond you. So when husbands wonder how much or how, like, the Bible says go all out. Like, actually be ridiculous in the amount of love that you show to your family and to your spouse. And sometimes that's difficult, right? Especially if you have a different love language, if, you've ever, if you understand that. Some people love with gifts. Some people love with words of affirmation. Some people love with quality time. And, and if your love is quality time, but their love is gifts, and you're spending all this time with them, and they're like, you didn't bring me anything, right? Like, sometimes that's difficult. You need to have an honest conversation and say, like, okay, how can I love you best? And I want to do the most ridiculous thing that I can. Like, go out and get a tattoo of her face, you know, right here, and then it's awkward when you're kissing. But anyway, but the, <laughs> don't put it on her face right here. Don't do that. But there's, if you already have, great. That was the right choice. But, <laughs> but there is, like, this, you, there is a level of how, like, what should I do or how should my life look? You might get to heaven and you'll be like, I won my fantasy football league 70% of the time. Um, God could care less, just like your wife. <laughs> there is, and just like you should think, but there is like marriage is this opportunity that you have as a husband to show the world who Jesus is. And so when you're with your friends and your friends want you to go out or do something or act in a certain way or degrade your wife with your words and you don't, then they start to see a picture of God and a picture of Jesus. They start to see what the love that Jesus has for humanity really looks like and what it feels like and what it sounds like. And what it, Jesus never took the chance to go out when God was using him for things that Jesus needed to do. And so husbands, and this is, let me back all the way up to this. It actually says, like at the bottom, it says that's how husbands ought to love their wives. They're really doing themselves a favor since they're already one in marriage. As soon as you start thinking about your marriage as two people, you start to struggle. Marriages that are struggling have two people in them. Marriages that are working, there's one person. And I would say that, you know, Monday to Friday, your marriage might have two or one or two or one, you know, or... Uh, uh, when the kids are misbehaving, it might end up being two, and then you come back and there's only one. But there's one team. And just like any team, guys, when you're watching a sport, you can tell when a team is one. You can tell when a team isn't one. And just like when you're looking at a marriage, you can say, that's, they're together. Like, they are together. And then you can see times when you're like, they're not together. And it might just be over an issue, and it might just be some things that you're going through that is difficult. But when you love your wife and you sacrifice yourself for her, it actually benefits you because you're this one. Like if you want a better life, you create a better life for your wife and your family, not for yourself. 
Like when you think, oh, when I get my man cave and spend all my money and spend all my time in my man cave and you think then my life will be good, if it's not benefiting your wife and your kids, it's a false illusion of goodness. You're actually passing, and I'm not against man caves, who gives a rip, but there's what you're actually passing up by focusing on yourself. You're passing up the opportunity to pass a legacy on generationally in the gospel to your kids. Not just to your wife, not just in your wife's spiritual growth, but also to your kids. So it is, like, there's a lot of forever talk when you're getting married, right? Like, I'm doing this wedding this afternoon, and they're like, I'm going to love you forever. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's true, and we're going to be together forever. And I'm like, well, biblically, no. But there is, like, it's not even, I know some people there are like, no, they're not, right? Like, or you're at a marriage and you're taking bets on who, how long they're going to last. You're a terrible person if you do that, but, but I understand. Um, but, but there is this, you're like, the Bible actually teaches that in heaven there's no marriage. Because in heaven, the marriage that you experienced is fulfilled in Christ. That's why if your goal in life is to be married because you believe that marriage will fulfill all of your emotional and spiritual needs, you're going to end up in a marriage wildly unfulfilled and frustrated because you had this expectation in the realities here. Because you think that what only a relationship with Jesus can give you, you'll get in marriage. You're not marrying the Savior. You're not even marrying your Savior. And for those of you who need to hear it, you're not the Savior in your marriage. When we start looking at marriage, the husbands have an opportunity to, the other translations of the Bible use the word sanctify, which means to make holy or to set apart as holy. The husbands present their wives holy before themselves and before God. When we all go to heaven at the very end, and I know I'm going to heaven because I have a relationship with Jesus, and my sins are forgiven, I've all, all of those things. When I go to all of those things, if you don't understand, that's a real thing. I experience salvation, and I have the promise of eternity with God. But when we get there, there'll be this moment where it's as wonderful for me, but there'll be this other moment and because of the way I live, I know I'm getting to heaven before my wife. But there is, there is this uh, moment when my wife will be there and there'll be, and my, maybe my kids will get there eventually and there might be these moments and my kids will get to make their own choices. But there'll be these moments, I pray this all the time, when, when they're seen as holy because of what Christ has done for them. And it will be even more of a celebration for me than them. The Apostle Paul actually wrote in the Bible that he would, rat, like, if, if it were possible, he would experience hell so that everyone else would go to heaven. Because this is what Jesus does. Jesus on the cross takes on the sin of the world so that you never have to experience the shame and the punishment and the justice that sin in your own life deserves. Jesus takes that on. And as a husband, God gives you an opportunity to actually take on the things that would hurt or shame or, or actually be like sinful and break the peace of your own spouse and your own family. 
you have the opportunity to take those things on for the benefit of someone else. It's incredible. And it doesn't make you God. It doesn't make you Jesus. It doesn't even make you close to that. But the Bible gives you this opportunity. Now, let's talk about that big word, submit. Is that all right? Wives, now that we've told your husbands to do everything that you could possibly want, and if that's all you heard, you weren't really listening well, go back and listen to the podcast. But there is, I want to talk about that. The Bible actually teaches, husbands love your wives, but it begins before that. It says, wives, it says, understand and support your husbands in ways that show your support for Christ. And then it actually ends with this. So just as the church submits to Christ as he exercises such a leadership, wives should likewise submit to their husbands. Uh, one of the first weddings I ever did, ever, 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 uh, they said, um, you can, because I do a little wedding sermon, and they're like, oh, right, that's great, just we don't want any, we don't want that word submit at all. They didn't want it at all. And I was like, well, that's unusual. Like, you, you want, you just don't want that thing. That, like, God said all this other stuff that you like, but God said that, and you don't want it. And we actually had this great conversation, and I walked through what it means and stuff like that, because I don't think... It's as anti-feminist as you think it is. I've had leaders in my life. I spent some time in the military. I played sports. I've worked in different office environments and, and like actual work environments, like physical work environments and stuff like that. And I've had leaders that are really, really easy to submit to. And I've had leaders that submitting to them would be like selling my soul. <laughs> You've probably had this. Maybe you work in an environment like this where submitting to your leader is the hardest part of your job. Like actually doing the work is easier than the leader who's leading the work. When I was in the military, we would have people who are, would, and if you've ever been in the military, this is awesome. There's people who are promoted because they're terrible at what they do. And you think if we promote them, eventually they'll get promoted out of the field and then we'll all be safer. <laughs> They'll be promoted to a desk job back east and will be a lot better off. And you all know who the leaders are. And those are intense situations, you know, or whatever. But you know who the actual leaders are, regardless of the rank that's on their shoulder. And in a family, biblically, according to this, you've got this man who's a leader and the woman who's kind of like the 2IC or the second in command. And then you've got these children who are like the troops and you invade wherever you're invading. The, you invade Izzy's at dinner time, right? Like, if you have a lot of teenage boys, that's what you do. But, but when you look at a family, I can tell you who the actual leaders are. In some family, the kids are the actual leaders. Like, they're actually in charge. Like, and not just because they're up all night crying, like when they're babies. That doesn't make them in charge. They're in charge because the actual leaders or the God-ordained leaders have decided to hand over leadership of this family to the children. It's crazy. If you've ever worked at a place or been in a situation where the actual leaders aren't in charge and it's just the inmates running the asylum, it's craziness. And there's like families that function this way. They're like, whatever the kids want or say or do is the center of who we are. And these people are the ones who struggle in their marriage when the kids move out. Like really honestly struggle. If they don't have grandkids fast enough, they start to struggle because they haven't been leaders in their own lives in so long. <laughs> when the opportunity for leadership is given to the husband in the Bible, 
the wife's submission to the husband. This is why, listen, ladies, if you're single and you're thinking about getting married again, get married to someone who you think you could follow their lead. Someone who you think would actually have your very best interest in mind. Like, I think this person will actually be a person who I would enjoy their leadership. It's just like when you're getting a job and you go in and you're interviewed by your potential boss and you're like, oh my gosh, I can never work for that person. And maybe you're desperate and so you take that job and then your life sucks. Well, I've seen people who are desperate, get married, and then it sucks. That's probably way too aggressive to talk that way, but there you go. There is this, like, the husband is given this opportunity to lead, and when the husband does it well, submitting to your husband is the best part of your day. Like, for real. And we think, oh, submission's bad, you're keeping me down. Not if your husband is actually reading the Scripture and doing the things that the Scripture teaches. Then submitting your husband means when your husband's sole agenda in his life is to sanctify you and make you holy and, to pres- and help you grow in your faith and so you know the Lord, then submitting to what your husband says is awesome. All the time. The problem is some husbands have no interest in submitting their wi- in having their wives submit to them in areas of spiritual growth. They want them to submit to them in areas of childish desires. Like, I want this. Do this, wife. If, that's, if you think I need to submit to my immature idiot husband, that's not what the Bible's teaching. The Bible's teaching you submit and understand and, and, understand and support your husband. And in this relationship, as you're working on doing that better and better, your husband is actually working on and growing in better and better serving and loving and sanctifying you. It's this weird dynamic. Marriage, the marriages that we look at and we love are full of selfless people. Because if there's a person who's living 100% for their spouse and the spouse is living 100% for them, then you end up with what the Bible calls oneness. That there's two people who have emptied themselves of everything they are and somewhere in between them or with the two of them has become this beautiful thing. And I'll tell you, like, we've been married a long... Like, we got married in the 90s. Longer than some of you have been alive. (laughs) And some of you are like, 90s, come on, child. But when you look at a marriage that's been happening for a long time, I would bet you there were times when it was like this, times when it was like this, times when it was like this. (laughs) But there is a tendency towards being one. And the Bible doesn't teach that you're going to be perfect. So wives, if you don't understand your husband sometimes, it's all right because you're not Jesus if you have a hard time submitting to your husband because he's dumb, it's all right because you're not Jesus. And hopefully he's getting smarter. As we live together in marriage, we both grow because the other person's sole intention in their life 
is to help you grow. Like there's a person in the world who wakes up in the morning, and maybe not their first thought, but before 9 a.m. is thinking, I love my husband, I love James, and I wonder what I could do to make his life better. Probably not consciously. Like, I don't think my wife is that sappy. <laughs> Some of you are that sappy. That's awesome. Have at it, you know? I don't consciously think, how can I make Heather's day better? But I have little opportunities during the day because the Spirit of God is in the details of my marriage. Little chances where I can do this thing or do that thing or say this thing or behave in this way or raise my kids this way or speak to my wife in a kind way. Little chances and little opportunities and the Spirit of God is revealed in my marriage. And so the marriage becomes something that God gave me, but then the marriage becomes something that God is giving to the world. See, when we, we're going to this wedding this afternoon with Jeremy and Rachel, and it's going to be a bunch of people there. And the wedding, like if you've been to one wedding, you've been to all the weddings. They stand at the front, they say some things, they exchange rings, they and walk down the aisle, right? It's like, like all the weddings are basically the same, but we keep going all the time. Like maybe this one's going to be different. It's not. It's going to be the same. But we keep going because there's something there that's so beautiful. Like there's two people up there who 100% believe this. And a whole bunch of attendants and audience members who like, in this moment, we 100% believe this. And the reason that we find it so beautiful is because in the moment of salvation, in the moment of a person turning to Christ, of turning and giving your life over to Jesus, there's this thing in that moment where you 100% believe this. Like you might have had a relationship with Jesus that where sometimes you're close and sometimes you're far and sometimes you're moving this way and Jesus has to chase you down. This, there's a lot of that in my relationship with Jesus. But in that moment, there's something that's so beautiful and has just loaded with creative potential. And we are drawn, we will drive great distances and put on uncomfortable clothes in order to be in the room when that thing happens. To be able to see that beauty. When we're talking about raising kids, your children have a front row seat to two people who are telling them, I really believe this. My kids get to wake up every day and see how much mom and dad believe in each other and in the promises and the commitments that they've made every day. And there are some days where the next day we have to apologize for how poorly we represented Christ and his church. It is not, it's an image. It's not a reflection. It's not a perfect image at all. But in your life, and not just for your kids, whether you're married or single, the way that you interact in your relationships, and most of all in your marriage or in your romantic relationships, most of all, kids get to see just a little second or a glimpse of God's love for them. When you forgive, when you do things that are solely for the benefit of the other, 
when you screw up and you apologize, kids get to see little bits of how much Christ loves the church and how much the church loves Christ. So I'm not going to tell you, go home and be married better. Because <laughs> you could try that, but Monday morning's coming. <laughs> you can try that, but eventually your kids are going to be terrible. <laughs> and are going to like sabotage everything that you've tried to do. But instead, I want to tell you this. Instead of just working on this thing that is your marriage, work on your relationship with Christ and not just for yourself, but work on your partners and the people you love's relationship with Christ. Say to them, what do you think you need to do to grow in your faith? And then make that happen. Like that might be, a, you might think that's a ridiculous question, but you can just say, well, Pastor James said I had to answer this. You know, I, if he asked me next week, like I don't want to say, oh, I didn't Like you get in the car on your way home from trick or trunk and say this, what do you think you need to do to grow in your faith? And then make those things happen. Like, it's, that's, that's not difficult. And when your spouse grows in their faith, and wives, you can ask that to your husband. When your spouse grows in your faith and grows towards Christ, then they grow towards this image in Ephesians of beautiful marriage, and you're really benefiting yourself. It really, and the Bible says that. Like, it's not a selfish thing. The Bible says that. So that's your homework. Does that, that make sense? Like, and that's real homework. Like, let's say next week I'm going to stand at the door and ask everyone who comes in, all right? Let's say I'm going to call you tonight. I'm not actually going to do this, so that's an empty threat. I will pull this car over. <laughs> but it really isn't, I'm going to try to be better at this because that's just working. Instead, allow the grace of God to work in you and in your partner and then allow the beauty of God to grow in that marriage and just enjoy the gift that God has given you. Let me pray for us. Can you stand up? We'll stand up and pray. Jesus, we are thankful for the way that you have worked in our lives. We are thankful for the things that you have done for us who are married. We are thankful for the opportunity we have to love someone and to be loved by someone and experience that special grace. For those of us here who are single, Lord, we just pray that you would allow us to serve you in, in ways that take advantage of our lives and who we are and who you've made us to be. We believe, God, that everyone here, single or married, is a full participant in the kingdom of God and in the work that you're doing. And so, Jesus, we pray that you would be at work in us and then that we would enjoy seeing you work through us. By your grace we pray, amen.